Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today I'm joined by Mustafa Akyol, a public intellectual, senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington, and author of a new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance. Mustafa, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Faisal. It's a pleasure to talk about this with you. Thank you. Let's start with the Malaysia incident, because I think that's a good way to make concrete some of the themes in the book. You were arrested a few years ago in Malaysia by the religious police because of a lecture you gave. Uh, that is correct. And that is a story I tell in the introduction chapter of my book titled A Night with the Religion Police. And what happened basically is I was invited to Malaysia by the Islamic Renaissance Front which is a NGO in Malaysia founded by pious Malay Muslims who are challenging some of the authoritarian or illiberal interpretations of Islam uh, that has become growingly ascendant in Malaysia. And uh, Islamic Renaissance Front had me in Malaysia several times in the past few de past decade, and they published my book, earlier book, Islam Without Extremes in Malay, in 2016. Uh, and... This time I was invited again for a series of lectures, public lectures, and it went well in Kuala Lumpur. I gave uh, several uh, talks to selected audiences. The third event was on the issue of apostasy, which is ridda in Arabic. Whether how you actually translate ridda as apostasy exactly is discussable, but uh, the issue is whether Muslims can abandon their faith and publicly uh, declare that they are ex-Muslims, they are Christians now, or atheists, or some other uh, belief. Right. And and I said, uh, listen, as a fellow Muslim, I don't want to see that. That's not something we want to condone. But if people lose their faith in Islam, well, it's their choice. It's their freedom. And we have to respect their freedom of conscience. And I said, there's really nothing actually in Islam that goes against that. Yes, in medieval fiqh, that's jurisprudence, Apostasy was considered as a crime punishable by death, and that's still in the laws of about a dozen Muslim-majority countries. But I said, this doesn't come from the Quran. It comes from a medieval political context in which uh, changing your religion was also seen as political rebellion. Uh, I emphasize the Quranic uh, maxim, as I see it, la ikraha fiddin, which is no compulsion in religion. And I said, religion cannot be policed. I mean, if people don't believe in it, you cannot police religion by, you cannot force them to believe in the religion. And that, uh, that was a crucial aspect of why you were interrogated because of that Quranic verse, there's no compulsion in religion. Exactly. I mean, soon after I said religion cannot be policed, <laughs> religion police came in and, and they started interrogating to me. To prove and, you wrong. Yeah. And I mean, they showed me their identity cards and their job is defined as religion enforcement officer. So I was telling the job of <laughs> those yeah. gentlemen. So and, uh, the, and they interrogated me a little bit. Then next day they got arrested me. Uh, they arrested me at the airport and uh, I was ultimately released. But yes, uh, I, I tell the story, which is interesting as a story, but I think the most interesting part in it was for me that when I was saying la ikraha fiddin, there's no compulsion on religion, they were actually quite disturbed about the fact that I quoted that verse and I couldn't understand it at the time. Why are they unhappy with me quoting a part of a Quranic verse? 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized what I suspected, uh, which was they actually take great pains to uh, limit the meaning of the words. When you read the Malay translation, uh, sorry, the English translation by the Malay authorities of that verse, you see that it's written with parentheses inside. So it reads, there is no compulsion in religion while becoming a Muslim. So oh, now that's a it's quite an important distinction because it changes the meaning of it. Yeah, it changes, it limits quite severely because if you say there's no compulsion in religion, it seems to imply that, you know, people can be Muslim or non-Muslim. It's their choice. And even if they're Muslim, it's it's their choice to fast in Ramadan or maybe not. I mean, it's their piety. But if you say there is no compulsion only in entering Islam, it's, it means that, yes, you will not be coerced to become Muslim. But if you have become Muslim, then you are subject to coercion by the uh, authorities. And, of course, that means you cannot leave Islam freely. Also, it can. It means that if you will be coerced to practice Islam, or be pious or moral in the way the authorities define for you, I mean, quite a lot of things can follow from that. If you start with the idea that you can be coerced in some way to practice religion, then if you think about the multiple nation states and the different laws that ha- that they have, you can imagine that the consequences of that flow quite a lot through the body politic. It does. And in my book, I show how it works and I show how it came to be within the Islamic tradition itself. Uh, first of all, I mean, just on that issue, I mean, I begin with the no compulsion in religion issue, but then I show, well, in classical Islam too, in Sunni and mainstream Shia jurisprudence, the worst was limited. Some jurists even said the worst is abrogated which is rendered ineffective by other verses that call for uh, you know, uh, jihad or war against the uh, unbelievers. And again, who are they is a good question. But yeah. um, And yes, uh, in the book, I, I speak of something called the statization of Islam. And what I argue is that Islam was born in 7th century Mecca, with the revelation, as a, as a Muslim, I believe, the divine revelation telling Prophet Muhammad to preach monotheism to a polytheistic society. And just a history began. And in that history, what happened is that Muslims actually initially wanted the freedom to live Islam and preach the faith in Mecca. Ultimately, they had to flee to Medina because they were not allowed to do that. What would happen if they were allowed is actually a very good question to think about. But ultimately, they, they, they migrated. And in, in Medina, the Prophet Muhammad had to establish a polity, an army. There were battles. And when he passed away, there was something that you can call a state. And, and, and the Islamic history began. And that state, state power, had a role in the making of what we call the Islamic uh, tradition. And it's not an accident that some of the verses in Mecca, uh, which called for toleration or non-coercion, which says to Prophet Muhammad, you're only a preacher, or which says to you, your religion, to me, mine, they were rendered ineffective. Uh, They were abrogated by uh, certain medieval jurists who were strongly allied with the Umayyad Empire, uh, later the Abbasids, who were uh, supporting an expansionist policy. So this is the this is the theory that you can look at the Quranic 
um, instructions in two phases. One is the phase of Islam really, almost in the Christian sense, being a minority faith around majority polytheists. And then later, as Islam becomes a nation state and is sort of born into power, there are different verses that mean different things. Indeed, uh, maybe not a nation state, but a state for sure, uh, an, an imperial one in the sense that it, it's expanded. And here's one thing I, sh I, I want to say in the book, and I, I, I make the argument. Uh, when you look at Christian history, you will see Christian empires. There was the Christian Holy Roman Empire. You know, there were crusades. There was the Inquisition. Actually, Christianity was much less tolerant than Islam until a few centuries ago uh, with all that. Uh, fusion with imperial power and authoritarian states. Uh, but ultimately, at some point, Christians gradually began to realize that that connection with power has to go, that Christianity should give up coercive power. It began with the Enlightenment. It began with the writings of John Locke. And it took quite a while for Catholics, especially, I should uh, emphasize. In Islam, I think we need the same recognition that, yes, we have an Islamic tradition. It was quite tolerant for its time, by the way, uh, but it was a tradition that really brought religion and, and state power together. And uh, this was quite normal, quite understandable for those times, but it was not a divine blueprint that we should consider today as, as definitive. And This means we should look into why we have blasphemy laws. And in the book, in the re relevant chapter, I say, well, we have blasphemy laws because uh, it was the norm at the time. The Byzantine and Sassanid empires were also using coercion against blasphemy. They were pretty brutal against it. And I also say, well, also we have blasphemy laws because the Umayyads want to, wanted to silence their critics. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, residual impact of imperialism and the and the interests of that imperial power on what we consider as our religious tradition. And I'm calling to make this distinction between the eternal unchanging principles of Islam and between the historical interpretations of it that took place in a time which is very different from the modern world in which we live in. Is it really possible, do you think, to distinguish those two aspects? Because you said, what might it have been like had the early Muslims been allowed to practice their faith sort of openly? Can you, I am imagining that by saying that, you think that the result would have been a different Islam to the one that most people understand today? It is possible to make that distinction. And I think Muslims, I mean, our civilization, the Ummah, has already made that distinction on certain issues Uh I will give you one example, slavery. If you look into our texts, uh, if you look into the Quran, if you look into the Hadith, if you look into medieval jurisprudence, you will see slavery. And the Quran called for freeing the slaves. So there was a great moral call for actually maybe abolishing the institution. But Muslims didn't abolish slavery until the modern era. And ultimately, when the idea of abolition came to be uh, partly from Western campaigns and partly from the calls for, from people that I call Islamic liberals, uh, mainstream conservatives weren't sure, but ultimately they made the argument that, oh, yes, there is slavery in our sharia, in our jurisprudence, because when Islam was born, there was slavery in, in the world. It wasn't an invention of Islam. Actually, the goal was to abolish it in the long run. Finally, we've come to that point. 
so they've realized that slavery is not integral to Islam. It's not something good that Islam has to preserve. It's actually a social evil that has to be eradicated, but it has happened through time. I think we can make the same argument for uh, for injunctions in, in hadith especially or in our jurisprudence that are uh, against gender equality, that are patriarchal. Or we can make the same argument with the idea that religion and state should be fused together. Again, that was, I think, a historical legacy and not not a uh, not a uh, integral part of Islam. And I think the the more we refuse to make those reinterpretations, we are putting in self big a big trouble. Because when you look at the Muslim world today, you see these endless battles over religion between self-righteous Islamist groups, between authoritarian regimes acting in the name of Islam, between their militant opponents, again in the name of Islam, by referring to these ideas. And uh, that's why I do believe we are in a really critical stage in the Islamic civilization, a crisis of Islam, as I call it, which calls for us to rethink some of these issues. And, and, and I, I do think that some of the answers are already in our tradition, but they are pushed aside. That's why I called my book Reopening Muslim Minds. So I wanted to get into this idea of coercive power because we've called the podcast Islam, Liberalism and Power because one of the central themes of the book is about Islamic governments giving up coercive power. And you consider that to be one of the principal impediments to a more liberal Islam. It is. Uh, and actually, you know what? I don't very often use the term liberal Islam. I, I, I call my view Islamic liberalism. There's a little distinction there. Uh, Tell me and, the distinction while we're on the subject. What is the distinction in your mind between? Well, I don't want to bring in a. Uh, I don't want to bring in the term liberal as a definition, a new definition to Islam. But with Islamic precepts and bases, you can opt for liberalism, or you can opt for fascism, and you can go for an authoritarian understanding of Islam. And I go for a liberal understanding of Islam. It's a synthesis of the faith and the divine core of Islam as I understand it, uh, that is the Quran and, and the divinely guided uh, Sunnah, which is a complicated matter. How do we know the Sunnah? Uh, and the liberal political philosophy that we have in the modern era. Uh, from Islam, you can make all different types of arguments. You can define absolute monarchy. Uh, you can defend absolute monarchy. You can defend a constitutional uh, democratic republic. And these ideas are out there. And I'm emphasizing political philosophy of liberalism. That That is, I think, it's an important contribution. And it's a good uh, philosophy that humanity developed in the past few years. But, now, but coming Mustafa, back, yeah. before we come back to the power aspect, just stay with this for a moment, because isn't that one of the problems with people who seek to reinterpret Islam? That they are, as you said, you can find within the, the tenets of the faith the uh, the political foundation for lots of different ways of organizing society. As you said, authoritarianism or monarchies. And yet you are doing the same thing. You are picking and choosing what it is you want to see in the texts. Yes, exactly. But I'm also saying that what many Muslims today, the, cons the rigid conservatives, let's say, consider as the unquestionable Islamic tradition was also a picking and choosing for the time and the norm 
in, in which this tradition was built. I mean, the whole idea of the Quranic, the abrogation of Quranic verses. Why did early jurists, when they looked into the Quran, not all of them, I mean, especially the one that are strongly allied with the Umayyads, as I show in the book, and with reference to scholars uh, that I uh, really uh, have learned from, such as uh, Asma Afsaruddin, I, I say that, well, early jurists, these jurists, look into the Quran, they saw verses in the Quran about fight until, uh, I mean, uh, like the verse of the sword, the fight against the mushrikun, the polytheists, and then they saw other verses about toleration, and they said the one, the, the later ones abrogate the old, older ones. They were picking and choosing. They were choosing an interpretation that was fit for their times, that was helpful for them, and that 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 time was a time of imperialism. But they weren't that, choosing the timeline of the Quran. The verses, the later verses abrogating the former ones, they didn't choose that timeline. That timeline really happened in real life. The timeline happened in real life, but to say that the latest verse in, in this time abrogates other ones is a choice. Others said they don't abrogate each other. They're just, they do taxis, which is they just, different, they just define different contexts. So all these different different views existed in the Islamic tradition. I mean, Ibn Rush speaks about that, and he speaks about some verses being general and some people taking them as uh, not general, uh, or he speaks some verses about being contextual and others making the mistake of taking general without understanding intention of legislation. So these ideas were already there. And in my book, I often, when I discuss these issues, I say, hey, look, this view became the mainstream, but... There was an alternative view, which didn't become mainstream. And the reason it didn't become mainstream was often that it didn't help those in power. Mm. So uh, yeah. if someone says to me, oh, you're trying to change the reading of Islam according to the times and norms of the time, I will say yes. And because I will say, because we don't live in a world where there's permanent war all the time. We live in a world of international law. We live in a world where Muslims can be free and safe in non-Muslim majority societies, which was unthinkable a thousand years ago. Uh, we live in a world that, thank God, slavery is history, so we don't have a jurisprudence about that. One thing we should understand, though, is that what we have as in our tradition is not unquestionable. And I, I, I call for what a lot of Turkish theologians have said uh, in the past couple of decades to make, this, to make the distinction between what is religious and what is historical. And it's not as easy as it sounds, but I think that's a crucial distinction we have to make. It's a very important distinction, actually. And I think you you lay it out very well in the book where you talk about how these decisions came about in the political context of the time. But it's quite a, a hard decision. And sorry, it's a, quite a hard argument to make in a context where you have a lot of Muslim groups wanting to go back to a purer, let's say, simpler interpretation of Islam. And you are almost making it more complicated because you are bringing in historical political contexts and saying those contexts no longer apply. Let's reinterpret the text. You're fighting a very hard battle against these other um, political groups. Well, it's a hard battle or not. I mean, if you're in Malaysia and making the case and the religious police arrest you, yes, it's a hard battle. But I also see a yearning all across the Muslim world for an Islam that is really non-coercive and that is tolerant and that is respectful to differences. Uh, I mean, the, the, 
the troubling interpretations of Islam that I am speaking about, they're not just written in the texts. They are put into practice in, in Malaysia by religious policing. And Malaysia is actually a quite mild case in Saudi Arabia, in Iran. Uh, we have religion police forces that push women to wear their hijab. And we have, uh, we have religion police forces which flog people because they drink alcohol. Or we have interpretations of Islam that justify autocratic rulers, despots, with using hadith saying that you should obey the ruler, whatever the, whatever the ruler does. Mm-hmm. So these things are not just written in text and they are being implemented, sometimes misused, but they're implemented. And a lot of people are seeing the results of this. And these are Muslims and they are really looking for a way out. I see so that, a yes, young generation, I see a younger generation really being shocked and puzzled by terrible things done in the name of Islam today in the Middle East and elsewhere and seeking answers. Some of them become honestly ex-Muslims. And that's not something that I uh, that makes me happy to see as a, as a Muslim myself. I'm just trying to emphasize that we have a different understanding of Islam, which is rooted in, in our uh, sacred texts, but which doesn't have the troubling attitudes, troubling to, to modern human conscience. Mm. Well, let's go back to the question that I ask about coercive power. And we were the, the question was, just to repeat it, that one of the central themes is about this idea of Islamic governments giving up coercive power, and that you consider one of the principal impediments to a more liberal Islam to be this coercive power, power by states. Indeed. And again, let me clarify what do I mean there. Every state uses some coercive power, and of course, in some cases, it is justified. I mean, every state uses coercive power to punish murder or theft. I mean, uh, and and I think, yes, we need it there. But do we use coercive power to sustain the belief in Islam and and impose the practice of Islam? There you have big problems. Uh, I mean, we are in the holy month of Ramadan. Ramadan Mubarak, by the way, to to Muslims out there who might be listening to us. We are at the end uh, of the Ramadan and soon Eid will come. And uh, millions of Muslims around the world have fasted in Ramadan. And I think that's a beautiful tradition. That's a beautiful practice. That's ibadah. That's worship. And uh, one problem I have, though, is Ramadan laws caught and caught that you have in Saudi Arabia, in UAE, in the Gulf, uh, in Pakistan, in Malaysia, which means if you're a Muslim and if you're uh, on a Ramadan day, uh, drink a glass of water on the street or eat a sandwich, the police will come after you. They can punish you. They can put you into jail. And that is the course of power I'm talking about. I'm telling, well, I fast not for the police. I fast not for the state. I fast for God. So it, it's between me and God. And my religious practice should not be monitored, should not be policed by forces outside. And when you and, and the, you can say these things are state laws, but when you look at Islamic jurisprudence, I mean, I showed in books of uh, jurisprudence by great scholars such as Malverdi, when you look at that, you see uh, there are injunctions about how to beat people who don't pray regularly. And and my argument is that, well, that's not coming from the Quran. It's coming from a social setting in the medieval times. People thought that it's good if you beat a people a little bit or flog them or punish them to uh, make them uh, pious or stay away from sin. And uh, it's not right. And it is actually working on, uh, it's not even working for the religion at this day and age. People are becoming less uh, observant. People are becoming actually 
quite reactionary against Islam because of these coercive practices. Well, the, the idea of this coercion, I think, is very intriguing because it can make concrete some philosophical questions. You mentioned in the book uh, Rashid Ghanouchi, the former um, president of Tunisia. And um, Ghanouchi, I interviewed Ghanouchi in Tunisia, and I asked him a question which I think encapsulates some of that political philosophy. And it was about eating during Ramadan. The question was, whose rights in a Islamic state should trump the other persons. In a lot of religious um, states during Ramadan, you find that people are not allowed to eat in public. So there immediately you have a tension between those people who want to fast and not be faced with people eating and those people who want to eat in public. And that's a tension that has to be resolved one way or the other. And so I asked Ranucci, and Ranucci's answer was that actually in an Islamic state, the right of the person who doesn't want to fast should trump the right of the person who is fasting. Now, that is an example of a, I guess, non-coercive um, power. But other states have interpreted very differently, modern states. You're exactly right, Faisal. And I'm glad uh, you had a conversation with uh, Rashid Ganushi about this. He's a great scholar, uh, besides being a political figure you know, that I respect. And I quoted, uh, quoted his views on this issue, actually, in my book, and I think he shows the the more liberal leaning uh, interpretation of fiqh jurisprudence on these issues that I'm I'm also advocating for. Um, he also has written about freedom of speech, uh, and and some people can promote views that are against Islam in Muslim majority societies. And the job of the Muslims is to answer those people by reason and not you know silence them by force, uh, put them in jail, let alone you know attack them uh, through vigilante violence as some people have done. This is indeed a huge issue, and uh, that's why several chapters of my book is uh, about this issue. Uh, one is on the matter of hispa, that is religious policing. We have an institution called the Muhtasib uh, in, in Islamic tradition. It actually began, as I show, uh, under Prophet Muhammad as market inspection. Prophet Muhammad wanted to avoid fraud in the Medina market, and he uh, enacted the institution that uh, pe some people will go around and check if the scales are not not uh, scales are right or wrong. Mm. But that gradually evolved into moral policing as well. And I I show that history in the book, and I say that maybe what we're doing is not even coming from the practice of the Prophet himself. Uh, there is a lot about the Quranic injunction commending the right and forbidding the wrong. Uh, a lot of idea is built on that or religious policing is built on that. And again, I show that it, its interpretation differed over time and the earliest Muslims didn't understand as religious policing. Uh, the whole issue of blasphemy and apostasy are huge issues. And uh, again, there is no verse in the Quran that actually says people should be killed for blasphemy or apostasy. The Quran generally says God will punish people for those things in the afterlife. Uh, which is fine. I mean, you can say God will punish apostates uh, in the afterlife. But uh, a lot of Muslims take it into their hands and uh, act in the name of God to punish sinners and so on and so forth, which is wrong, uh, which is wrong from a modern human rights perspective. And I'm saying which is wrong from an, even an Islamic uh, point of view. And and also the out, the most terrible outcome of that is 
whose Islam are we really implementing here? Uh, if you're a mainstream Sunni conservative and you think that my understanding of Islam should be implemented, well, go and try to live under ISIS. You will be an apostate according to ISIS and they will come after you too. So, and, and in, in Iran, it will be the Shiite Islam and the Sunnis will be excluded and suppressed, which is what, what, what's happening in Iran. And if you look at Saudi Arabia, it's the other way around. So when you say that true Islam must be upheld and imposed by the state, it always is the Islam of whomever captures power in that territory. That's why it leads to endless uh, persecutions and, and battles among Muslims as well. And I want, yeah, carry on. And I say this is very similar to what the Christians went through uh, in the uh, 17th century when Catholics and Protestants were really struggling with each other, killing each other in the 17th century, uh, Europe, Christendom. And, and they were able to get out of that by the ideas of John Locke and others who called for toleration and neutral states and, and the individual freedom. And that's mm. basically the solution that we need to have. I wonder how much of this is also about the context of power. The, the Ranucci example is intriguing. I mean, Ranucci, of course, uh, was, I think he would be put in the tradition of being a Muslim reformer before he became a political figure. And now, of course, it's a little bit more complicated because the ideas that he wrote about when he was in exile have now been implemented in the kind of messy political compromises that Tunisia is living through. So we can't exactly translate his writings into the political practice. But what do you make of the criticism that the idea of liberal Islam, as um, Ranucci tried to express it in his writings in exile, only were only liberal because he was in exile, that it's very different when you are in the, uh, that you have the power of a nation state, you come up with different ideas. You, you want to implement a different Islam when you actually have the power of a nation state. Well, you're pointing to a very important distinction, which is do Muslims see the value of liberalism? And uh, I think they see it very well if they are persecuted. <laughs> if they're in exile or if they're in the minority. Uh, but what happens when you capture the majority? That's it's a good question. Uh, but, uh, I mean, speaking of Ganushi, I think Ganushi has been, I mean, he's by and large defined as an Islamist, but I think in the Islamist spectrum, he's always been the most uh, thoughtful and progressive or liberal leaning one. And I think mm -hmm. his evolution has helped his mental evolution, his ideological evolution has helped. And yes, him being uh, in Europe, uh, in England, if I'm not wrong, for a long time, uh, helped, I think, him to see the blessings of a free society and, and develop certain ideas which helped Tunisia. It is true that uh, Muslims see the blessings of liberalism. I mean, in Turkey, I've seen myself, I mean, Turkey's incumbent uh, Islamists today who are supporting President Tayyip Erdogan, they were in love with liberalism in the 90s, late 90s, when uh, the hijab was banned in Turkey by authoritarian secularists, and the liberals were saying, it's individual freedom. You cannot violate the rights uh, of a woman. She can wear whatever she wants. It's not the job of the state. Turkey's Islamists loved that liberalism when they were the persecuted uh, minority or the persecuted group You know that was... Uh, uh, marginalized by the people who held power. But will they hold that idea when they come to power? Honestly, in Turkey, they didn't do. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of Machiavellism sometimes that's going on there. But I do see uh, Ganushi as a more principled 
figure. And, uh, and I think from all these experiences, what we should infer is that we should define the ideal limits of state power regardless of whether we are in power or we happen to be persecuted by power. Right, uh, right, right. No, absolutely. That Because it, the only way that you can create a truly liberal state is if you create it while you are weak and you have no idea what your situation is going to be like. Exactly. I mean, that's the veil of ignorance, uh, mm -hmm. exactly. of course, uh, that you know some liberal th theorists have spoken about, and uh, like Rawls. And I think, I mean, there are, it's a good idea. And the question is, maybe, Faisal, we should also define what we mean by liberal. I mean, the term I see in the Muslim Twitter sphere or online or intra-Muslim discussions, oh, Muslim liberals, they understand as, as like non-practicing. Or when I call for liberalism in Islam, what some people understand is, oh, Mustafa Akil is calling for Muslim women not to wear the hijab or not to be pious or he wants people to give up prayer on... Right. No, I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about just no compulsion in religion. I would call... If there was no term liberalism and I had to invent one from the Islamic language, I would call it la ikrahiyya, like no compulsionism. And uh, in a liberal society that I see as an ideal society, again, not a heaven on earth, no society is perfect, but as a compared to alternatives, an ideal society, Muslims can be as pious as they want. Uh, I would defend the right of the where to wear niqab in, in France, but other women have the right to wear a miniskirt and it's their choice. And every society somehow manages, you know, a, a certain culture, a certain uh, norm, certain norms, but they should not be coerced. And some people will be atheists, some people will be pious, some people will be is Muslims in the way they understand. And we have to respect that natural diversity in society, which comes from individuals making their decisions about their lives. Well, let's maybe start with what this positive vision of that might look like. I mean, if you were to imagine this Muslim society that followed your book, what would it look like? What would what changes would we see in the world if more people listened to the arguments in your book? Well, in Muslim majority societies, I would call for getting rid of all the laws that ban blasphemy or apostasy and uh, lead to religious uh, coercion. Uh, and let me also remind that those laws are used against not just really secular people or really atheists. But even Muslims who have different ideas about the tradition, we've seen how the ban on apostasy has been used to kill or threaten just Muslims who have different opinions uh, about uh, the, the nature of the Quran or how to interpret the Quran. Uh, Mahmoud Taha was executed. He was an Islamic scholar, executed in 1985 in, in Sudan, only because arguing that the Meccan verses are actually the more universal message of Islam and the Medinan legislation was more time-bound. So he actually just reversed, called for reversing the traditional abrogation idea. Uh, and again, I wouldn't go that far, but he was killed for this and they called him an apostate. And we should see the impact of really policing thought, uh, which blocks us from rethinking anew on all these Islamic issues. I would call for getting rid of all these uh, injunctions. I would call for uh, also the right to criticize those in power because 
the the illiberalism I'm thinking of, is speaking about is not just about social life and practice and whether people are pious or not. It's also about relationship to power. And we have a very strong tradition in the Sunni world, most now uh, passionately supported by most Salafis, and that is you're not supposed to criticize the ruler. You should obey the ruler. As long as the ruler upholds Islam by taking care of the mosques and uh, you know, he, he himself prays, as tyrannical as he is, you should obey the ruler. So that is the kind of idea that I would oppose. I would call for liberal democratic governments in the Muslim world with, with less uh, state intrusion in society. I would call for diversity of thought in Islam. So some Muslims can be Salafi, others can be Mutezala, others can be, some people can be secular atheists, and they should all be able to speak freely in those societies. And I know that it's not going to happen anytime soon in some of the societies we're talking about, but I think we should put the ideal. Also, like in Pakistan, uh, there, there's an Ahmadi minority. I mean, they define themselves as Muslim. We should respect that. We should uh, define them as Ahmadi Muslims, as unorthodox as they are. And nobody should be uh, thrown takfir on them, like you're kafir, and then which comes, of course, which is followed by threats. Basically, it's toleration and non-coercion, non which I believe will make Muslim societies much more peaceful, much more harmonious, harmonious, and will allow them to go forward and focus on the right things and not not endless disputes on which whose interpretation of Islam is right or wrong. Mm. Let's talk about a specific case uh, of a Muslim country, which is Turkey, the country in which, as you as you write in the book, you've spent most of your life. I was particularly interested in the phrase you use in the book that you've lived through the grand political revolution that Turkey went through this century in the 21st century. And I also feel that Turkey is passing through a revolution, but I'm often surprised by, by how few people seem to recognize the enormity of what has taken place. So let's perhaps talk about it as an explanation of your intellectual journey. What, what is this political revolution that Turkey is going through these, these last 20, 23 years? Uh, first of all, thank you, Faisal, for reading my book so carefully. I appreciate it. And you catched a lot of interesting uh, notes there. Uh, indeed, I mean, I'm Turkish. I was I was born and raised in Turkey only in the past four years. I'm, I'm living in the United States. Uh, Turkey is my life's biggest, biggest disappointment, I can say. For about a century, Turkey was dominated by the people that we used to call the Kemalists. These were the followers of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who founded Turkey in 1923 after World War I. And they were staunchly secularists. And it was, a, I mean, I'm a defender of a secular liberal state, but this was a secularism that had very illiberal aspects to it, such as banning Islamic education, uh, outblowing Sufi orders, and even intruding into public, uh, private lives. For example, one of the iconic issues in Turkey in the, when I was coming to age in the 90s was the ban on hijab, headscarf. Like Turkey, Turkey adopted French-style secularism but made it even much worse and even more uh, intolerant and illiberal. It was really impossible for a woman to wear the headscarf and go to university and, and get a university education. Universities were guarded by what I called secularism police. And I was a passionate... Uh, opponent of, of that illiberal secularism. And at that time, Turkey had an Islamist movement led by Nejmettin Arbakan, who was kind of Ikhwan al-Muslimin, 
adapted to Turkish context, less overtly Islamic, but it was still clearly coming from Islamist ideology, ideological roots. And uh, an offshoot from them said, listen, we outgrew our ideology. So just like Nahda in Tunisia, in a sense, mm-hmm. they said, you know, we are post-Islamists, we are Muslim Democrats, uh, and we now believe in liberal democracy. We want the European Union criteria. We want freedom for everybody. Uh, but I think unlike Nahda, where Ra- Rashid Ghanoujji is really a thoughtful figure who thought this out and really believed in that uh, ideological, philosophical transformation, in Turkey, especially for a figure like Tayyip Erdogan, this was a tactical Machiavellian move. Okay, we need to do this. Okay, let's do this. Uh, but once Turkey's post-Islamists, if you will, uh, post-Islamist so-called would-be democratic liberals captured power and consolidated power, all their narrative began to change. And today, uh, that's why in, in the first decade of Erdogan, we saw a Turkey that is making liberal reforms, reaching out to minorities, making Turkey freer for Kurds, uh, for the, even the leftists, you know, the ultimate enemy of the Islamists all the time. Uh, but then everything started to roll back and it got worse and worse and even worse than the old Turkey that Erdogan uh, used to condemn. And to me, that is just a, a sign that uh, look carefully into these issues. And if you and if you just uh, adopt a liberal democratic language, because if it is helpful to you at that point, but if you don't really believe in it, and if you rather sustain a supremacist authoritarian worldview, it will come back the moment you grab power. And unfortunately, that has happened in Turkey. So uh, I'm disappointed with what Turkey has become today. There were people in Erdogan's party who really believed in, I think, the Islamo-liberal synthesis, as I called it at the time. But they were pushed aside. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, I think it's it's not really fair to say AKP didn't have among its cadres real intellectuals. I mean, Erdogan is a politician to his fingertips. He may not be the greatest Muslim intellectual of Turkey, but around him, there are lots of people. It was just that the politics of the time pushed that to one side. Yes, and all those people are now pushed aside. They are condemned as the traitors. (laughs) And because AKP just turned into an Erdoganist organization, nothing, nothing other than full obedience to Erdogan's persona and glorification of his his majesty. And uh, the people who used to be with Erdogan, I mean, Abdullah Gül, yeah. Ahmed Davutoğlu, yeah. Ali Babacan, those people are all uh, in the opposition now. Uh, two of them are leading opposition parties against Erdogan. What they're saying is that this is not what we began for. This is not what we hoped uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. AKP has turned into a corrupt authoritarian party, which is very true. So that's why they are in the opposition. And uh, the Turkish experience, I think, to me, shows that what really matters is not who is in power. What really matters is how power is structured. That's very interesting. Let's unpick that a bit because I, I like to make these things concrete because I think it's very useful to think about the sort of the political philosophy, but see it in real life. And you're right. Turkey is an excellent example of this, not merely because it is such a big country. And so to some degree, what it does has much more influence than perhaps smaller countries in the world. 
Indeed. And by the way, that is why I speak about liberalism, because liberalism is a political philosophy is about how power is structured and how it should be constrained, not just uh, whomever comes to power and, you know, the good guys yeah. will come and everything will be good. Uh, Turkey ha has long had a tradition where the judiciary, instead of being an upholder of justice and rights, uh, is subservient to power. And, and the judiciary exists to protect the state and, of course, the masters of the state. This was there before Erdogan. And, and I mean, actually, it, it, it began with Ataturk. Uh, it had other roots, maybe, but Ataturk designed Turkey in a way that the judiciary protects the republic and the republic is uh, led by himself. It's called the unity of powers instead of separation of powers, which in America, you, you know, it's called checks and balances. And I think it's a very important value in any society. Uh, Erdogan and his his fellow Islamists they used to condemn this, criticize this for decades. They said we don't we want rule of law, not the rule of the uh, not the law of the rulers. But once they began to consolidate power, uh, they started imitating the same thing. Uh, by the way, there was a another element there called the Gulenists, which is a big part of the problem of the past twenty years because they were first Erdogan's best allies. Uh, uh, and then turn into his greatest enemy. And they wanted to capture state power too for their own cultish interests. Uh, that's another part of the problem. But I'll yeah, I mean, you, you, you handle that very well in the book, actually. You called it an, uh, an interconservative coup, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but I don't want to get too much into the, the, the political aspects of Turkey. The crazy politics of Turkey. It's, yeah, it's going to well, yeah, take days and days, very, yeah. It's very important, but I want to sort of think about what it means in terms of a Muslim liberal democracy. I mean, you you could imagine a situation in the late 1990s, the early 2000s, where Turkey, led by Erdogan, goes in a different direction. It was, and uh, I still am hopeful for Turkey in the sense that I'm hoping that a, a point may come in the years ahead where a uh, lot of Turkey, a lot, lot of people in Turkey can say, listen, we had the Kemalists, we had the secular authoritarianism, we had Erdoganism, you know, the, the response yeah. to that, which is a populist Islamist authoritarianism. Uh, and now maybe we can finally become a civilized country where nobody feels as the enemy within and everybody is equal under the law. What has Did happened in Turkey is basically power shifted from one group to another radically. And the new, uh, the new victors, the new triumphant rulers, uh, as Ibn Khaldun described, you know, in his great cyclical view of history, they just began to imitate the people they they defeated, and even turned worse, I think, in many ways. Uh, ultimately, that, that, yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say that very idea that they imitated the people that came before them. Actually, that doesn't seem to suggest much hope for Turkey. I mean, Erdogan is still an immensely powerful figure. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere. But when he finally leaves, do you think that the next group to take power is going to shift it back to the early 2000s or is simply going to imitate the authoritarianism that they have replaced? I'll be very curious to find out the answer to that question. What I'm saying is that finally, we Turks, I mean, speaking of my people, we can finally, maybe, if we have some wisdom, to say enough is enough, enough that we've been persecuting each other, killing each other, jailing each other for a century, 
uh, depending on whoever whomever has power. Let's really move on to become a society where everybody's equal under the law. Uh, I mean, there's a lip service for that. Sometimes there are really forces in Turkey who would want that. But the, the, the hatred within is so deep that this experiment got derailed in the past uh, 10 years. Uh, is Erdogan still very powerful? Well, actually, his support is declining. He's still very powerful. I'm sure in any election he will get at least 40% of the votes. But yeah. this might not be able to win. And there might be a popular figure defeating Erdogan. And, and I would like to see that, honestly, through elections. And uh, I would like to see a post-Erdogan Turkey. But I would like to see that post-Erdogan Turkey, not yet another era of revenge and zealotry and persecution against the old regime, the Ancien regime. Uh, I would like to, to, not yet another revolution, but an evolution to a inclusive political system with an independent judiciary, equal rights for all, a limited government with, with limited cronyism and corruption. Uh, the, the ideals of political liberalism that people like me have been advocating against the uh, Kemalists, and now we are advocating against the, uh, the Islamists in power. Mm. I want to ask you about another country. And, and the reason for that is that I think it's very interesting for the audience to put your intellectual tradition in a real world political context. So when you said earlier that people sometimes call you a liberal and what they mean by that is that you almost want to you know, make Islam this kind of gentle, quietist thing that very few people actually follow the precepts of the faith, you could be talking about France. And yet when you you've written in the book that you're not a proponent of French secularism. You call it illiberal secularism. Very much so. Um, I probably have written, I don't know, dozens of articles in the past 20 years criticizing laïcité, uh, which is the French version of secularism. Why, why did I criticize it? Because I find it illiberal in, in, in certain ways. Uh, in Turkey, it got worse. I mean, so Turkish laïcité was actually quite much more illiberal than the French version. But I don't see any justification in having a law which says a uh, Muslim woman would not be able to wear a headscarf in, in a high school or in a, in a, in a college. Uh, I don't see any, uh, any justification. It doesn't happen in universities in France, but it happens in high school. I, I find it insane to send police to beaches to check whether Muslim women are wearing burkinis or taking an issue with people having a halal or a kosher food in a public canteen or asking for it. Uh, France has a troubled history with religion. The French Revolution was a revolution against the monarchy and the Catholic Church and the Catholic orthodoxy and the illiberalism created a anti-religious, anti-clerical at the very least. Uh, reflects in, in French secularism. I find this pre pretty troubling. And I think it's unfortunate that Islamic world has seen secularism mainly through French-inspired examples of Turkey and Tunisia rather mm -hmm. than a liberal secularism that you would find more in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, in the British and American traditions. Uh, I, I, if there's one model of secularity that I uh, advocate, it's probably the American model where... Uh, freedom of religion is strongly emphasized and communities and individuals have full rights to practice their faith uh, unless they violate the rights of others. And I think that's the model that will give peace to Muslims because we have Muslims who are 
Salafis and very orthodox and, you know, uh, God bless them. Let them be happy and with their practice. We have Muslims who are not like that and let them be happy in, in the way they live. So that toleration is, I think, the key issue. Uh, and yes, I'm, I'm, I'm critical of illiberal secularism, whereas I, defi def I defend a secular state in a way which will allow toleration and freedom in society. It's interesting that you choose the United States as a good exemplar rather than, for example, Western European countries. Western European countries tend to be more or rather less religious, whereas the United States is a very religious country in some way. I mean, there's a lot of public discussion of religion in the way that you don't see in Western European societies. Very true. And that is precisely why, or that's precisely yet another reason why I find the U.S. important because... For a lot of Muslims, this whole modernity thing looks like a march into godlessness, right? Oh, do you want us to become modern secular, modern liberals? Oh, we don't want to be all atheists, as you know they think is the case, and uh, with some justification in in some Western European societies, uh, like religion will lose its importance. People will just joke about it, and there's there won't be any sense of sacredness in society, and that's what freedom means. That is what a lot of uh, conservative Muslims think when they look into countries like uh, Holland, let's say, or or some other Western European countries. Well, I'm not I'm nothing against those countries. People are free to do what they want, but to me, U.S. is interesting because it's a country where freedom and piety are not against each other, but they actually have. Uh, supported each other. And mm. it's a society where a lot of people are uh, are religious, intensely religious, but uh, and but their diversity has been uh, preserved by the principle of individual freedom and limited government. and and they have gone well together. And I think I mean US has certainly a darker history when it comes to race, which is of course the talk of the day in the past several years. I understand that. Uh, but when you look into religious diversity, I see the U.S. as an example. And I think it's unfortunate that the modernity that the Muslim world has been exposed to has rather come from mostly from the continental European tradition, especially France, but uh, and not so much from the U.S. and its roots in the, of course, uh, British Enlightenment. I like these conversations because I think it's nice to kind of carve away the bark of the ideas and get down into some of the detail. Because when you say that you are in favor of the US model, I think what some people who are sort of like Western European liberals will hear is that you are not really their friend. You don't actually want a society that is secular in the way that liberals in the Western European tradition would understand. You want a society that has a lot of space in the public space for religion, for faith. Exactly. <laughs> and, that, that, and that is freedom. Freedom means the right to be as pious and as religious as you want to be, and the right to be not pious and not religious. And I think that is the healthiest medium for religion itself. But Mustafa, uh, that is that is one way of structuring the, the 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 state aspect, the apparatus of the state. But there's also a societal aspect because that distinction exists in the U.S. It, ex it exists in Western Europe, but the societies are not the same. The Western European societies, you can be free to practice your faith, but it's to some degree frowned upon. I mean, it's 
you know, public expressions of faith are pushed out of the public space in the way that they are absolutely not in the United States. Well, part of that is culture. And of course, you cannot legislate culture. And it's not a culture that I like or support or want to expand. Uh, I, I would, other things are legal. And, and in a legal framework, I'm certainly against uh, the bans on religious practice or at least the inclination to do even more in France uh, that we see. I mean, in France, the hijab issue since early 2000s is unacceptable. There are even calls now by politicians like Marine Le Pen to even ban the headscarf even on the street. So that would be the mirror image of Iran <laughs> that I am very much against. You cannot legislate what individuals wear whether in Saudi Arabia or Iran or in France or in Quebec or Belgium or whatever. Mm. And uh, when it comes to culture, I mean, society, some societies value religion more, some societies value religion less, and you cannot legislate it. And, and I also understand that in Europe, in Western Europe, that distaste towards religion partly comes from the fact that terrible things happen in the history of Europe in the name of religion. So what I fear for the future of the Ummah is that if we keep on with the current status quo, which means authoritarian regimes, illiberal practices, violence and intolerance in the name of Islam, we may end up like Western Europe in a century or so, where freedom means freedom from religion primarily, and there will be a lot of distaste towards religion where I would like to end up like the United States, where some people are pious, some people are not, and it's all fine, and uh, religion doesn't disappear in society, but really enriches the lives of people. It does, I think, to millions and more than a billion Muslims. I don't want to give up piety. Uh, I just want to make sure that it is flourishing on freedom and not coercion, which is the actually only way, because I see the more we push on coercion, we rather have hypocrisy or even reaction against religion. You don't want a society that would frown upon public displays of piety? Certainly not. Let me ask you then a very stark question, like the Ranucci question. Can you, if, if you think about a society where politicians express their, um, their religious views, would you prefer a society where a politician says, God made me do it? or a society where that is never said? Well, I mean, if a politician says that, he has the right to say that for sure. Uh, I would question the theology behind it. I would say, no, actually, it's you who are doing it uh, because you have free will, and I would make the free will argument from, uh, the, from Islamic theology. Uh, I, the thing is, when, when I say public expressions of religion, I'm not against those. I'm not against those. It doesn't mean that all expressions will be nice or acceptable. I mean, from a moral or theological point of view, if someone says uh, only my people will go to heaven and everybody will go to hell, I would say, really, is that really a just God that you are now depicting with that uh, view? So there will be public expressions of religion that I would strongly criticize if it is parochial, if it is tribalist, if it is uh, putting putting your own responsibility onto God, therefore absolving from your responsibility. That is how sometimes uh, predestination is used in, in the Islamic world. 
So I would have problems with those, but I would not call for banning those expressions. And some of the expressions might be good. Some of the expressions might be towards compassion, towards uh, towards family values, towards uh, understanding between religions. I mean, I've seen politicians saying that God created humanity into different peoples and tribes, so we may know each other. So that's the basis for understanding with different cultures. That's a beautiful message that's coming out of the Quran. So when religion is public, there will be less to discuss about it. But I have no problem it being public. Well, let's look at some of the criticisms of the book. And I want to start with an issue that I had with the book almost immediately just by looking at the contents list. And it's the presumption that the problems of the Muslim world stem from the ideas of the Muslim world. So let's sort of unpack that a bit. Like, of course, Muslim countries have problems. The Muslim majority country of, for example, Iraq has some problems. But so does the Christian majority Philippines, the Hindu majority India, um, you know, the Christian majority Russia. The, the deep-rooted systemic problems of Russia or the Philippines do not stem from Muslim ideas. Perhaps you might say they stem from Christian ideas, but that's a different conversation. But I wondered why, when you are looking at the problems of the Muslim world, why do you not look at politics and economics and power and war and instead only focus on ideas? Well, a lot of people focus on all these social political dynamics you're speaking about. I chose to focus on the religious issue. And, uh, and it is, here's one thing. I don't think every problem in the Muslim world is coming from certain interpretations of Islam. Absolutely not. Uh, we have a lot of problems just coming out of nationalism, which is not an Islamic idea. Actually, a lot of Turkey's problems, if you will, a lot of the brutality in Turkey in the past hundred years, first against Armenians and then uh, Kurds and Turks themselves, who are just opponents of the government, of the system. It comes from nationalism rather than a certain interpretations of Islam. A nationalism that often blends itself with an Islamic identity, but it's it's complicated. There are certainly a lot of structural problems. There are problems coming from failed states and, and so on and so forth. But I do think there is a real religious issue behind some of the problems that we have. When uh, you have somebody killing Shiites, bombing school children in a Shiite neighborhood because they are Shia, and he is chanting Allahu Akbar while he's doing that. Well, there is a religious problem here. There's yes, that there, there, there are there's a political context. Afghanistan is a failed state. There are tribe, there are a lot of things, but there is a there's a theology, there's a jurisprudence which says takfir, I mean, which throws takfir on the Shia, which says these are kafir. And once he says that, he thinks that they are uh they're free game, they can be killed. So there is a religious idea here. When when you have a state like Saudi Arabia, which doesn't allow the practice of any religion other than Islam. This is a religious problem. Uh, when you have a lot of issues on women's rights, when you have clerics supporting uh, downgrading of minorities or women, this is a religious problem. So I'm not saying all the problems in the Muslim world are coming from religious roots. Some directly are. And I want to honestly address them as someone who believes in the religion. Also, I should say that those problems are sometimes addressed by hardcore secularists or atheists or ex-Muslims, and they're saying, this is, this is, this is happening. Mm. I'm not one of those people. I am look, I'm seeing those problems with pain as a Muslim who believes in my faith. And 
and yeah. I want to go forward as a Muslim, not not betraying my faith, but criticizing the historical interpretations that groove around my faith. But you accept that if the problems of the Muslim world don't all stem from the ideas of the Muslim world, then you cannot solve all of the problems of the Muslim world simply by changing those ideas. Exactly. And it's just like, I mean, my book wasn't a solution to all the problems that the Muslim world has ever faced. I'm just speaking about some of the religious problems that we have. Other problems are there and and I would support and I sympathize with all the efforts on economic, social, political aspects of uh, the crisis that we're going through. Well, that brought me, I think, to a second major criticism that I had with the book. And it seemed to me that you were critiquing Islamic societies without dealing with the effects of power. So, for example, I read your book as a PDF, which allowed me to seek out keywords. And there is no reference to the 2003 Iraq invasion. There's no reference to the Iran-Iraq war. There's no reference to Sykes-Picot, no reference to the French occupation of North Africa. In fact, in the whole book, the word colonialism only occurs twice. Do you see what I'm getting at? You've written a 308-page book about the state of the Muslim world without mentioning at least some of the primary drivers of the current state of the Muslim world. Uh, I didn't write a book about the state of the Muslim world. If I did, actually, I would be getting into all that history that you're speaking about, which would also include Saudi-Iran rivalry, the horrific war between Bangladesh uh, and Pakistan, or the Pakistani aggression, let's say, on Bangladesh. I mean, there is an endless history there in which there are lots to blame on Western colonialists or Russia or China or any actor out there. And, and, but my book is about religious thinking. How are we religiously thinking about issues that relate to human rights and freedoms? I have one, if you, one paragraph indeed. I mean, I had more in my earlier book. I say that the West has a blame because Western powers have come to Muslim world, not just with ideas of enlightenment and toleration, they've come with inhumane deeds such as colonialism, occupation, plunder, and domination. And I say that has been a big part of the problem because when the West uh, uses these good concepts for their political interests and, and colonial aggressions to justify them, uh, they, they delegitimize human rights. So I point to, and I said, one can write volumes about this, but this book is about something else. And one thing I want to, the reason I wanted to do that especially is this. Look at the educated Muslim sphere out there. There is no shortage of Western colonialism, which is justified. I mean, that criticism is justified. There is no shortage of criticism of Orientalism. Again, very justified. Uh, there is no shortage of uh, condemnations of U.S. foreign policy, which includes the uh, totally unjustified occupation of Iraq, which includes U.S. support for dictators. It is there. But I'm saying, hey, listen, these are true, but we have issues within that we have to work out. And this book is about that. This is not the only thing I will say about the Muslim world, or I, I have said about the Muslim world, but this book focuses on Islamic theology, Islamic jurisprudence from a human rights perspective. And this is the issue of this book. But you have accepted in the book that religious thinking is influenced by political context. 
So it is influenced by political context, and that political context influences includes uh, Western colonialism. It includes Russian colonialism. It includes Muslim authoritarian governments and despotism. It includes secular despotism, as in Iran under the Shah, or uh, secular authoritarianism in Turkey. I mean, I'm not denying it, any of those things, but this book is really not a political history book. It's about it's about Kalam. It's about Islamic theology. It's about human nature, how it is uh, discussed by the uh, Mutezala versus the Asharites. So this is a book about Islamic thought itself. I'm not denying the importance of those things, uh, which is a social science discussion, political science discussion. This book is a jurisprudence and theology book. Let me just push you one more um, time on that, because... It is to some degree a historical book. I mean, you are talking about how different groups with different political philosophies became ascendant through political power, and that's why we've ended up where we've ended up. But then how is it possible to say religious thinking was influenced by political context, and then later to ignore the political context, particularly the political context that we're living through now? Well, I show the history of Islamic thought and how it was influenced by, let's say, the Umayyad Empire or the late or the early Abbasid or the late Abbasid empires, because at that time, nobody was influencing. I mean, there were crusades and Mongol catastrophe, of course, which is which were attacks. But Islamic civilization developed in when Muslims had political power themselves and the Umayyad dynasty was expanding on Christian territory and, and other territories. And I'm showing certain uh, certain turns were taken there in that context and I'm showing the influence of that. This is in the 20th century, in the 19th century, in the past two centuries, we have we Muslims also have found ourselves under the colonial ambitions and aggression onslaught of Western political powers, which is true. And I'm against all that legacy, which I've written before. But this doesn't explain why we had blasphemy laws uh, under the Umayyads, why uh, scholars like Gailan al-Dimakshi was executed by the Umayyad Empire. And I want to show that within there, because I think there is enough Islamic sensitivity towards political intrusions from the outside, and I am with that sensitivity. But we, I think we have a blind spot towards the political intrusions of our own glorified Islamic past into our religion. And again, mm -hmm. this book is about that. Interesting. Um, a lot of the book is premised on the idea that Islam and Islamic countries are in a difficult situation. And yet, Islam is actually immensely popular. It's the fastest growing religion of the modern world. On some estimates, it will overtake Christianity within our lifetime. And in the United States, where you are speaking from, more people convert to Islam, particularly from Christianity, than convert to any other faith. So why, if things are as bad as you say, why is the faith still so popular? Well, Islam is, I think, the growing fastest religion in the world, mostly due to birth rates. And uh, do people convert to Islam? Certainly, a lot of people also convert out of Islam. And I think more conversions out of Islam will take place in Muslim-majority societies. In the West, a lot of people convert to Islam. Let me ask you, why do people convert to Islam in the West? I mean, do they say, oh my God, there's this beautiful religion police in Saudi Arabia that really 
forces people to flog them if they drink wine or something. What a wonderful, they don't say that. Do they convert to Islam because they love the way the Iranian regime treats its dissidents? No, they convert to Islam because of the value they see in the spirituality of it, in the morality of it, in the family values, in the theology, in the belief. And I share those beliefs and values, so I understand why people convert to Islam. But I also see a lot of people abandoning Islam. Iran is a number one source of ex-Muslims. And I very much see that this is happening partly because we have a very authoritarian, tyrannical interpretation of Islam that is pushed by the regime. So uh, the fact that Islam is has a big population out there, to me as a Muslim, is good news. I have, I, I, but, but I don't think that this makes everything right. Because if we have interpretations of Islam that are shocking to the conscience of mankind out there, besides those who really strictly believe in it, uh, what will Islam be? I mean, it will be just a religion of the people who believe in it. What, what are we saying to the rest of the world? We have a spirituality to share, which does attract souls. But I don't think by religious policing, by blasphemy laws, by apostasy laws, by somebody getting killed or jailed every month in Pakistan with false charges of blasphemy, I don't think we're winning hearts and minds. I want to end on a personal note. Um, it felt sometimes as if you were writing the book more in sorrow than in anger, that you wanted the faith to be better because you yourself are a believer in it. I think that's true. <laughs> do you feel optimistic about reforming Islam? Do you see glimmers of hope? I do. And again, the Islamic world has already changed to quite, uh, to quite an extent in the past two decades. Remind you, slavery was a part of Islamic tradition. Nobody questioned it two centuries ago. We have been able to abolish slavery with long campaigns and the resistance is similar to the resistance to religious freedom today. They said this is an idea that comes from infidels and it cannot be changed. I mean, there was a revolt against the Ottoman Empire in mid-19th century say, saying Turks have become infidels because they're changing the Sharia, which was banning the slave trade, basically. So things have changed. The idea of an elected parliament, a republic, a, a kind of democratic system, it has been accepted by many Muslims. Uh, even Pakistan, I have huge issues with Pakistan today when it comes to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. It's a country where you have elections and there are people who will say democracy is kufr, but they're growingly you know, less, uh, less and less influential. So already certain changes have taken place, I think, in the Muslim world. We just have to be honest about the need for change. And I think the biggest change is simple, accepting freedom. And that means freedom to be religious, but not to be religious. Freedom to be religious in the way you believe in it. To be an Ahmadi or a Shia or a secular Muslim or a Mutazila or a modernist or a Salafi, whatever you want to believe in it. And I think we will find more peace if we accept more freedom and, and, and stop, stop judging people in the name of God. And, and that's why actually the final chapter in my book, which is, I think, very important, is the, is the chapter on tolerance. I speak about the murgia in early Islam, the postponers uh, who emerged in the civil war, uh, the first fitna, the civil war in Islam. And they said, it's up to God to judge who is the right Muslim or not. Let's leave it, let's postpone it to afterlife to be judged by God. And I believe that philosophy is what we need in many parts of the Muslim world today. Yes, I am sad to see the state of Islam in the world today, 
uh, I think this is the worst time of the Islamic civilization with with a combination of a lot of terrible things that you also noted. I mean, Western colonialism, Western double standards, support for dictators, Russian and Chinese uh, elements there. I mean, China's ongoing genocide against Uyghurs, uh, Russia's support for tyrants like Bashar Assad. And yes, Western foreign policy as well. There are a lot of things there. But we have people who call for the killing of people who just think differently and live and believe, believe differently. That is to me unacceptable and and to me that doesn't come from the quran or the prophet that comes from uh medieval muslim empires who just wanted to uh, use power for religion and it's time to question these things and and to give up coercion and to accept freedom mustafa akil thank you very much thank you very much it was a pleasure Mustafa's book, Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom and Tolerance, is published in hardcover now. And you can continue this conversation on Twitter. You'll find us there at New Lines Mag. You'll find Mustafa at Akyol in English and me at Faisal Yafa. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>